This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. very much. Uh, I'm just going to start by praying, Jesus, um, we love you, we love your words, and um, I just pray that you'd be speaking to us this morning. I pray um, that you would have, well, we know that you have words for us to hear, Lord, so I pray that our hearts would be open to that. Amen. Um, I just want to start by uh, bigging up 3 to 1 quickly, actually. Um, we, uh, it's, guys, it's just a really good thing to do. If you don't know Jesus yet, or if you don't know him very well, it's just a great place to come. We invited someone last time who we really thought wouldn't come, and she did come. And this time, uh, I'm bringing someone who said no to me last time, but in between asked if we we're doing it again. So just, even though we're this close to it, just be bold, ask people, the Lord is working. Um, we're going through a series uh, of themes in Proverbs at the moment. Uh, I think this is our third last one, and this is on uh, justice. Now, justice is all the way through the book. Proverbs 1 starts by saying that this book is the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, for, and then it lists a number of things that this book is about, but it's for, uh, and I've highlighted one down there. We've got for doing what is right and just and fair. So all the way through the book, justice is a key part of Proverbs. And there's so many verses in just, on justice in Proverbs that when I first went through the book highlighting them, I came away with this massive shortlist from which I drew another shortlist, from which I drew a third shortlist, and I've still not used all the ones on that shortlist, so there's loads uh, to look forward to. And I'm just going to take you through a few key verses uh, that I think highlight what um, God says about justice, what God says about a particular area of justice, um, and what I feel like he's been saying to me and to us as a church about justice. Now, if you're uh, not a part of this church, we also meet on Wednesdays. We meet in small groups, which we call... um, God First Community Groups, G1Cs, uh, and over the last half year or so, we've been going through, all these G1Cs have been going through a series by a guy called Tim Keller on Gospel in Life, and he touches on different areas um, and talks about the Gospel on them, and uh, two weeks ago, our G1C, we did the one on justice, so I'm just going to steal loads of things shamelessly from Tim Keller, um, but one of the first things we talked about was um, different elements of justice. The word justice brings up different connotations, because there's kind of more than one part of justice, and um, I found it telling probably that the first thing that came to my mind when I heard that I was doing one on justice was the kind of justice of like the gavel smashing down, like justice will be served. Uh, Joe and um, Joe and I, uh, this is just a, a story to uh, kick us off on that. Joe and I frequently, when we have people around for dinner, like they say, um, can we bring something around? And um, we're always like, no, we've got everything. And they normally bring a bottle, bottle of wine anyway. We normally do that too. We've got one spare now from the uh, Kenneths as well for coming over on Friday. Thanks. That goes straight into the uh, in the wine cellars. Um, but one night we had some people around and um, I was washing up afterwards. And I was really tired and we'd got the obligatory spare bottle of wine, which we'd not end up drinking because we're really lightweight on the counter. And I was drying up, whilst, or washing up whilst talking to Joe. And I put things on the drying up counter and I loaded one too many 
and it knocked the bottle of wine off a whole unopened bottle of red wine, smashed on the floor, splashed up the wall. And people say, like, oh, it goes in slow motion, but it honestly went in slow motion. Like, I really specifically remember hearing, like, one thing hit another and then hit something that sounded heavy, and I was like, that was the bottle. And then I heard it spin and bounce and s- bounce off the bin, and it lasted so long, but I, s- I-, I honestly thought, um, oh, I've got away with it. It's managed to not break, and then it smashed. And um, so I was really tired. Obviously, that's not a great thing. Got wine on the wall, got glass absolutely everywhere. But the worst thing is... I mean, no one's counting, but in the moat house, if someone's more likely to knock something over and spill something, it's Joanna. And uh, I'm quite a gracious guy, so when Joanna does this, I normally respond by ever tatting, rolling my eyes, or saying, why did you do that, as if she chose to do that? So on top of this, I'm tired, I've got this terrible situation, and I'm like, Joanna is going to give me, like, the full, like, she's going to put six in me for this, like, it's time to pay the piper. Oh, look who's dropped this. But Joanna is much more gracious than I, so actually seeing how tired and devastated I was, actually sent me upstairs and cleared up herself. That's how good Joanna is, I know, right? But that's the kind of justice I think of. Um, to be honest, when I was thinking of personal anecdotes, the first t- list of ten I came up with were people who've done wrong to me, like when Andy Allen spilled water down my back at a conference, but the piper will be paid, Andy, on that one. <laughs> yeah. Now, part of the reason there are so many verses in Proverbs concerning justice is that whilst I just mentioned one side of justice, justice is multifaceted. There's lots of different elements of it. And the first key thing I want to mention that the book of Proverbs talks about when it talks about justice is justice belongs to God. Justice belongs to God. In Proverbs 11, verse 1, we're told that the Lord detests dishonest scales, but accurate weights find favour with him. And we can kind of get that, right? The Lord hates cheating. He's saying he doesn't like the methods people use to cheat one another. He detests fat people cheat. I hate that too. We, we get that. But 16, verse 11 goes further, telling us that actually honest scales and balances belong to the Lord. All the weights in the bag of his making. So it's not just that he detests dishonesty. It's actually that honesty, justice belongs to him as well. He's the one who made the honest scales in the first instance. He's the one who we weigh justice by. Elsewhere in the Bible, we're told that his throne is built on justice, on justice and righteousness. Justice belongs to God. Why is this important? Because the world doesn't believe it. And sometimes we don't believe it either. How do I know that the world doesn't believe that justice belongs to God? Because what's one of the most common questions you hear from people who don't know Jesus? How could a good God let bad things happen? And don't we sometimes ask that? We don't always prefix it with how could God. But like in that situation, I was like, why did that wine bottle smash on the floor? I'm really tired. Like, why did that happen? Essentially, I'm saying, why did, that, why did that happen? And where does this question come from? Whether we prefix it with why does God allow it or, uh, or in Christian hearts, we're doing it ourselves anyway. Well, essentially, it comes from the idea, I think, or the belief that we actually know more than God, that we are wiser than God, that actually God is less just than we are. We're saying... If I were God, I wouldn't have allowed that wine bottle to smash because it was unfair. Therefore, I am more just than God. If, we're, if people in the world are saying, why does God allow bad things to happen? They're saying, if I were God, if I was the one who had all the power, I wouldn't let bad things happen. Therefore, I am more just than God. Now, what we know from the Bible that tells us is that the world refuses to see or that it doesn't know. But the first humans, Adam and Eve, when given the choice, they were living in paradise in perfect relationship with God. They were given a choice They were given free will and they turned their backs on God and they ushered in the pattern of all humankind who used their free will to sin against them. The Bible tells us that the ruler, the prince of this world, is Satan and he encourages this rebellion to God. And this sounds abstract and mythological, but it's not. It's deeply practical and it's profoundly relevant. This is true. Like, now we don't believe that, like, it's a, you know, it's an equation. We don't believe that, like, oh, I lie to someone at work this day will equal, I'll therefore have this thing happen to me, like, I'll get fired or something like that. But we're lying. Or we're misguided if we don't think that we are also using our free will to sin. 
And as such, we've got this world that is fallen. We've got this world where bad things happen, where bad things happen that feel unjust at the time. Proverbs 19.3 says, A person's own folly leads to their ruin, yet their heart rages against the Lord. We're in a rebellion against God, and that sin has led to a fallen world where bad things do happen, but the world blames God. That's what we're saying. It's my own folly. It's my own folly for knocking off that wine bottle. But for some reason, I'm saying, oh, why has that happened? That's unjust. We can also see that the world doesn't believe that justice belongs to God, at least in secularized society, because we make laws and public opinions that are counter to what God says is true. We're in a society where Christian beliefs are increasingly marginalised and public figures who are Christian are hounded on beliefs that are considered at odds with secular society, which people act as some higher good. The 17th century French uh, lawyer Montesquieu, who was responsible for uh, cheers, for um, developing the theory of separation powers, which is in a lot of constitutions in the West, he asked the question, he did a lot of writing about this, if there are laws sustaining the world, then who has created these laws? Because behind every legal order or public opinion, there is always a God, be it God himself or those who control, have control over the state machinery. We know that God has given us the ultimate laws. We know that God is the highest authority. But if laws are created above him or that are contrary to them, then they are saying that whoever made the law, human, human intellect or the, the lawmaking machine, is a higher authority than God. And when in our society we're told that, oh no, Christianity believes this and that's wrong, which it just is wrong, is it? And Christianity says it's the absolute truth, but it's not the absolute truth. Why is that the case? Well, it just is, isn't it? It just is. They're talking about this, this abstract higher truth. Well, they're putting public, public opinion and human, uh, human thoughts above it. And we can see how dangerous this is in 1 Corinthians. We're told that the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. We're saying that we are wiser than God And that's really dangerous because we're told that the wisest we can possibly achieve is less than God's foolishness. So justice belongs to God. Why is this important? Because it means that we don't need to be blown like a reed in the wind, bending to whatever the latest public opinion on justice is. We know that we are rooted in a God who created and upholds justice, whose throne is built on it. And conversely to what the world thinks about God's justice, and if you don't know God yet, you should look into it because we find that his justice is good, kind, loving and just. We find that a lot of things, that this kind of like abstract public opinion of things are just right, are things that justice uh, that God uh, promotes, which is actually created and built by God. We talked about how justice is multifaceted, how it's kind of like the reactive justice that I talked about, like Andy does something to me, I do something to him, that's justice. But there's also proactive justice as well. Tim Keller highlights how God's justice includes equality of treatment, generosity, and a special concern for the poor. You might remember from the, um, from the Gospel in Life series on justice that he talks about justice as kind of like things coming back to where we, they should be. It's this holistic thing. All these different elements of justice come back to it. And justice belongs to God, so he's the one who's in control of it. Now, one thing we can appreciate in that misdirected question of why the bad thing happened is that bad things do happen. Our world, as we've said, is fallen. And until Jesus comes back, we must be aware that there is injustice in the world. The richest 10% of households in Great Britain hold 45% of all the wealth, but the poorest 50%, by contrast, own just under 9%. And the odds are stacked against that changing. The rich get richer and the poor get poorer. I'm not going to spend loads of time on stats, but just one really small example I was shocked by when Joanna and I went from renting to owning a house. We pay so much less for our mortgage than we do for rent. That stack, it's, the odds are stacked against people earning more or, or, or uh, getting more stuff by the richer 
And that's just one example within Great Britain, which itself is vastly wealthier than any number of nations in the world. But there is injustice in the world, and consequently there are poor in the world. There are richer people than there are poorer people. So who are the poor? Well, the poor in Proverbs are picked on, they're destitute, they're downtrodden, they're oppressed, the rich make enemies of them. There are different types of poor people as well. Don't just think about people who are homeless or people who have less money. We do have the financially poor, but we also have the socially poor. People in different social classes. There are physically poor, spiritually poor, people who are spiritually mature, relationally poor, people who are lonely, locationally poor. And thinking about this list, we can see that there is injustice in our world, can't we? It's not just that some have less money than others because they've done less to earn it. Some are born in war-torn countries or those without access to education. I wasn't. Different genders are treated differently. Different races are treated differently. The Bible describes the poor, it uses the poor word poor synonymously with the fatherless, the widow, the orphan, and those who cannot speak up for themselves. So when we say poor throughout this, don't just think of, um, of the financially poor. But we have a God to whom justice belongs. So what's that about? Well, what does, what does Proverbs tell us about God's relationship with the poor? In Proverbs 23, verse 10 and 11, we're told, Do not move an ancient boundary stone or encroach on the fields of the fatherless, the poor, for their defender is strong. He will take up their case against you. God is the defender of the fatherless, of the poor. Psalm 12 tells us, Because the poor are plundered and the needy grown, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will protect them from those who malign them. Tim Keller says it is in the way of the vulnerable people are objects of special concern. God's justice, part of God's justice, a really big part of it is that he cares about the poor. He's a defender of them. He rises up when he hears them groan, when they're being maligned. It's almost the case sometimes when you read the Bible on the poor, but it sounds like it's better to be poor than it is to be, well, it probably is in some ways. There's a verse in Proverbs, which I'm not running up there, which is, uh, it's better to be uh, poor whose life is blameless rather than it is who's rich, whose ways are perverse. But listen to what God tells us to do for those who are poor. In Proverbs 29, verse 7, we're told the righteous care about justice for the poor, but the wicked have no such concern. The righteous care about justice for the poor, but the wicked have no such concern. And the word care here, care about, uh, is a real deep care. It's uh, translated in a number of different ways uh, across different verses in the Bible. So when they say, uh, when it says in the Bible that Adam knew Eve and she bore him a son, that's from the same root of the word, so it's a really intimate knowledge. Uh, we're told Esau became a skillful hunter, that idea of skillful. So the idea of caring for the poor is like to the, a skillful level, to an increased level. God knows the day you eat uh, is another one, and God's knowledge is perfect. So it's a, an intimate, passionately committed and deeply intimate knowledge of justice for the poor. So God is saying that we must also be defenders of the poor. It's not just enough that he is a defender of the poor. So who are the poor to us? Well, I can't just copy Tim Keller on this one because you have all read it, but I was challenged by what he said when he says, it's not just those who are like us who we like and who like us. It's not just people who are similar to me, who I get on with and who are kind to me. And actually, when I reflect, those are the people I'm most interested in doing justice to. Those are the people who me and Joe have prioritised in our lives. Those are the people who I most want to do good with and show the love of God to. You've heard this before, I think, how to put it in a preach. Uh, but the Emperor Julian, the Roman Julian, a Roman emperor in 360 AD, said, the imperious Christians support not only their poor, but ours as well. Everyone can see that our people lack aid for us. This was in an empire, so it'd been, Christianity had been going for 360 years, and to begin with, Christianity was persecuted and absolutely hated. And yet, 
they are just spreading so significantly, it's becoming so popular, and their hearts towards the poor, to be defenders of the poor, are so significant that the emperor is saying they're making us look bad. They care for not just their own, which would be bad enough, but they're caring for ours as well. And you don't have to look hard or far to see the impact that has been had on society by Christians who have taken this mantle to be defenders of the poor to heart. Hospitals have significant origins in Christianity. At the First Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, which was a meeting called by the Roman Emperor Constantine to call together bishops from across different churches to get consensus on the way they were doing things in doctrine. They agreed that the care for the poor or the needy, the physically poor in this instance, was so significant that they would build a hospital in every, Christian, in every cathedral town after that. Schools have got significant heritage in Christianity. From the advent of agriculture and all the way through the Industrial Revolution, children weren't educated, they were just part of the workforce, they were just beaten, that was the only education they had. But in the 17th century, there was the Protestant Reformation, where Martin Luther drew attention to the fact that it's important for us to be able to read the Bible for ourselves, to be ministered to directly from the Word of God. And as, as a response to that, universal education was taken up. The first orphanages in the Roman Empire in 400 AD were put under Christian care of bishops and then later monasteries. And the impact they had was so significant that in England, when the monasteries were dissolved by Henry VIII... Three monarchs later, his daughter Elizabeth had to implement a series of poor laws, which are known as the Elizabethan poor laws, poor laws because the, la- the amount of need was so significant and was no longer being catered for as it had been by Christians. And in fact, many laws in general across our, our democracies have got their, their history, their roots in Christian justice. Romans did not safeguard basic rights before the spread of the popularization of Christianity. Spurgeon says, there is not a land beneath the sun where there is an open Bible and a preached gospel where a tyrant can long hold his place. This is what we're talking about. If God is the highest authority in terms of law, there is justice. So we can see the impact that the church has had on social justice. If you don't know Jesus already, this is our God. This gets me excited. This is great, isn't it, to see this is the kind of justice God is interested in. He's the one who's created it. I don't have to be worried about what the latest public opinion changing, which 10 years ago said that this was just, but is now saying this is just. I know that justice has been decided, and I know who sets it, and I know that he who sets it has created it and is just. And just look at the fruits that have come from that. And it's exciting for us to be able to say, look how much stuff the church has done as well, Jesus' church in terms of justice. That, doesn't that, that gives me faith like to see how many things in society that are good are rooted in Christianity. But it's not just about the church as a body. It's not just for the church's work is done. God's opinion of your relationship with the poor is also zero-sum. In Proverbs 14, we're told, whoever oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker, but whoever is kind to the needy honors God. You see that, that zero-sum nature. Whoever opposes the poor shows contempt for their maker, God, but whoever is kind to the needy, the poor, honours God. Now, I don't think I oppressed the poor, but I was challenged when in that Gospel in Life thing, Keller suggested that your relationship with the poor is an index of your relationship with God. When I prepared for this preach, I felt convicted. Because... Can I be said to have intimate knowledge of the poor? I don't think I need to preach this to everyone in the room, but I feel convicted. I feel challenged by this. If your relationship with the poor is an indicator of your relationship with God, what state would you say those relationships are in? 2 Peter 1 lists some godly attitudes and attributes such as love and self-control, and he says... I shouldn't turn the page... 
If you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying we should grow in the things of God. And Bill Hybels asked the question when speaking about this, are you more compassionate now than you were five years ago? Are you more compassionate now than you were five years ago to the poor? Proverbs 21 verse 3 tells us that to do what is right and just is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. And this reminds me of uh, some famous bits in Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet that God sent to Judah. And um, Isaiah 58 in particular is, is very famous, but he also talks about it in Isaiah 1. It's this section on true fasting. I'll just read some bits from it. But God says through Isaiah to his people, he says, Declare to my people their rebellion and to the descendants of Jacob their sins. For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my way. So he's talking to people who seem to be going to church. They seem to be seeking the Lord. As if they were a nation but does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. I ask God for just decisions. I seem eager to come to near God. Why have we fasted, they say? So these guys were doing spiritual discipline. And you've not seen it. Why have we humbled ourselves and you've not noticed? Yet on the day of your fasting, God says, you do as you please and exploit your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I've chosen? Only a day for people to have themselves. They're Sunday Christians. Is that what you call a fast? A day acceptable to the Lord? Is this not, says God, the kind of fasting I've chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke? To set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. Flesh and blood, humans, this is everyone he's talking about. Then your light will break forth like dawn and your healing will quickly appear. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, your light will rise in the darkness. Spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry. The people of Judah are startled that they aren't doing everything right. I'm startled when I read that. It's easy to read that and go, oh, the Judah, people of Judah are crap, weren't they? But actually you read that and you're like, they're doing their spiritual disciplines. They're seeking the law for just decisions. And what's the thing that the Lord's saying to them that they're doing wrong? They're not doing justice. God is saying, if you don't care for or have a relationship with the poor, you aren't in relationship with me. And this isn't just a message limited to the Old Testament. In the New Testament, Jesus says to the Pharisees, the religious rulers of the day, he says, you guys are crazy. You're so obsessed with the law. You tithe everything. You even tithe your herbs, giving 10% of everything you have to the church. But you're neglecting the poor. You're being unjust. And we get to the rich ruler in in, uh, Luke 18 as well, who comes to Jesus and says, Lord, what must I be do to be saved, to to seek, uh, to inherit the kingdom of heaven? And God says, uh, Jesus says to him, well, you must obey the commands. You must not commit adultery. You must not commit murder. You must honour your father and mother. And rich ruler says, I've done these all the days of my life. And Jesus says, great, well, there's one more thing you must do to be perfect. You must sell everything you have and give all your possessions to the poor. And the rich man leads very unhappy because he's very rich. God cares about this. We see it again and again. The extra thing God is calling for is justice for the poor. So here's why I feel challenged. We've looked at the impact that churches have had on society in the past. And it's not just the past. Churches are doing it today. Joe and I's last church was a church in Bracknell, Kerif. It's a great church. It's a really big church. They do some things well, some things less well, like all churches. One of the things they do really well is that part of their vision is they want to be a church that if they were taken away, the community they were in would recognize that. And they're doing it. They care for the poor. They've got a prison ministry. 
They care for addicts. They've got, they got, and they're buying more houses to house, house the homeless. They've got a cap center, Christians Against Poverty, getting people out of debt. They've got a food bank. They've got a team who are dedicated to social justice. And it's amazing. You can just get plugged in. When Joe and I led a small group there, it was great for us to just be able to say, like, you guys are already doing something. Can we pick up some of this stuff? Can we help you out a little bit? If Kerif were taken away, Bracknell would notice. The authorities are aware of them. They were skeptical of them at first because they're Christian. But now they give them things to do because they see the fruit. Would anyone notice if we took G1 away from Cheltenham? It's not that I don't do anything for the poor, and I don't think that it's the case that none of us do anything for the poor. But we're not where we want to be yet, are we? Do I feel more compassion than five years ago? Do I feel comfortable having my relationship with God judged on my relationship with the poor? Proverbs 21.13 says, Whoever shuts their eyes to the cry of the poor will also cry out and not be answered. Ouch. Like I, I read that one a couple of years, or took that one in a couple of years ago. A man that stuck with me. Whoever shuts their ears to the cry of the poor will also cry out and not be answered. Have I ever walked past a homeless person on the street and ignored them when they've asked for money? Have I ever ignored a socially poor person at work or in a social situation? Sorry, I can see that there's someone stood on the edge of a social circle, but I'm really enjoying chatting to these people. They're on their own, but I want to chat to people who are like me. Have I ignored people who are poor because of their location and inherent injustice in my birthplace compared to theirs? Yeah, I think there is a famine going on in East Africa at the moment, but that's not my deal, is it? Because I don't live there. I joked about little injustices that have been done to me, and we have a culture where we'd call these first world problems. Hashtag first world problems. But is this flippant? Being flippant makes, means making light of something that's actually quite serious. Is there a risk that the biggest injustices that we involve ourselves in are first world problems? See, I worry because I spend a lot of time praying that I wouldn't be sucked into the culture of Cheltenham. We talk about this a lot and I think maybe also I feel like I should do more to speak up the good things about Cheltenham. And also maybe I should stop looking at, you know, like if I was in a persecuted place, that would be great because that would be the battlefield. Whereas actually our battlefield is where we are now. This is where we've been placed. So maybe the fact that the culture of Cheltenham is all about comfort and about financial autonomy and about wisdom, maybe that's, you know, we're just placed in a place to fight now. But I worry that I spend time praying that I wouldn't be sucked into the culture of Cheltenham and be made comfortable, but I really just mean that on my own terms. I worry that my heart towards the poor might be lukewarm when I read these verses. Revelation 3 Jesus says to one of the churches, you are neither hot nor cold, and I wish you were hot or cold. I wish you were hot for me so I can embrace you, or I wish you were totally cold so I could shut the door on you. You are not, you are lukewarm, but because you are lukewarm, I will spit you out of your mouth, my mouth. He's challenging them to become hot. Man, I'm worried that I'm lukewarm on this. But what's the practical response? Isn't there only so much little old me can do? Am I not doing enough? I do stuff already. Is it not fair to say I've only got limited money, time, energy, but I don't see many poor people day to day? Aren't we powerless? That's how I feel when I think about this. I read this uh, man, really challenging, John Stott, was a preacher, asked on, on influence. Oh, this just hit straight to me. He says, we are not powerless, Christians. I'm afraid that what we are, rather, is often lazy and short-sighted and unbelieving and disobedient to the commission of Jesus. Man... I know that's me sometimes. I know that on this issue, I'm sometimes lazy. I'm frequently lazy and short-sighted and unbelieving and disobedient. I'm nervous about coming on heavy about this, guys, but one, one, I feel like our culture is against this. 
We've got a God who associates with the poor and not the rich. That is crazy. There is no other God in a religion who associates first with the poor. Gods of the age are the gods associated with the rich and powerful. Our God associates with the poor, but our culture does it the other way around. We've got a culture that encourages us to be comfortable, to be rich, to only associate with people like us. So we do need to speak about it, because if not, we'll be in this place of lukewarmness. And two, I'm convinced that God cares about this. But do you want some good news? Because when I felt convicted about this, I felt like curling up and receiving the justice that was due to me, just like the wine bottle off the counter. But I no longer feel dismayed. See, I don't think we're, more, we're called to be motivated by guilt for this. Now, I, I'm still looking into this, but I actually think the word guilt is actually okay on its own. So in the Old Testament, before Jesus came and made the way to the Father, uh, the people of Israel would make sacrifices at the temple and the priests would admonish them of their sins so that they could still be close to God. And one of the examples was guilt offerings they gave. And Jesus talks about guilt in the New Testament as well. So I think, I'd, I'd look into it yourselves, I want to look into it more as well, but guilt as a word is actually okay. But what we really frequently understand by guilt here is uh, is shame. And there's, you know, there's two ways you can go with guilt. There's two ways you can do with, with, with guilt. I think guilt is, is kind of like actually just for conviction, the challenge. But if it leads to shame then we're not going to be motivated. Shame is not a long-term motivator. Some giving campaigns motivate you by shame. They say, hey, look at this really sad story. Come on, you're rich. Come on. You, you'll be, you're, you will be a better person if you give. Joe and I met when we were doing street fundraising for charities, and um, they didn't tell us to do it by shame, and they didn't tell us it was shame, and I wouldn't have necessarily noticed it as shame. But that's, that's primarily what you're doing. You get given like a, um, a little book of like case studies. Come on, look at this, really, look at this sad picture. Like, and come on, it's just it's the price of a, uh, a cup of coffee a week. But shame isn't a long-term motivator. If we do this, if you feel guilty, and in terms of guilt, I mean this conviction, I think that's good, I think that's okay. But if you then decide to do things out of shame, that is not okay. One of two things will happen to you. You'll either become like a Pharisee and just be doing stuff because you must, and in times you'll become bitter, or it will just be too much to take for you. You can't do things motivated by shame. It's just too much of a burden. At some point, you'll put your head in the sand. You'll say, no, I can't bear this. But guilt also can lead to repentance. In 2 Corinthians, uh, we, um, this is the second letter to Corinthians. And um, in the first one, Paul's come on quite heavy on a couple of things that needed sorting out in the church. And in 2 Corinthians, he says, even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, my first letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, because I see my letter hurt you, but only for a little while, yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Here we see, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. That's what we're talking about. Do you want to go into shame in this, or do you want to go into repentance? God's kindness leads us to repentance. I am a big fan of being convicted of sin, because I know that Jesus has died for all my sins. But I look at Paul and see that the older he got, the more mature Christian he became, the longer he'd been walking with Jesus, was when he said, I am the biggest sinner of all. He recognised how much sin there was in his life. It's, for, it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. I believe if we're convicted in areas, because God wants to deal with it in our lives. What we need is a Josiah moment. Josiah was a king in ancient Judah. 
Judah was going through a really bad time. His father before him had been an evil man and led the people away from God. And when Josiah came back, Josiah decided that he was going to lead the people back to God. He got the priests to go up and go and clean up the temple, which was in disrepair and was not being used for God. And as they were cleaning it up, they found hidden away the book of the law, the law that God had given them, this highest authority law we, um, uh, we talked about earlier. And um, they realised as they read this book of the law just how far Judah had come from God. And it says, when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his robes. That's how I want to be. This is how I feel. I feel like I've read this stuff and I'm like, man, I'm not there. I want to tear my robes on this. I felt I couldn't avoid discussing the fact that we're not doing much on this topic corporately, social justice, when speaking on it. But whilst I myself at least feel convicted and repentant, I do not feel defeated. Because I think God is calling us into this for our own good. I know he is. Proverbs 19.17 says, Whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will reward them for what they have done. Whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will reward them for what they have done. How gracious is this? Do you know that the Bible says that the silver and the gold belongs to God? You might think that you have done well at earning money, but let me tell you, the silver and the gold belongs to God. It's God's to give and God's to give away. And if you think that's not true, if you think, no, I earned it, your birth location, did you pick that? Did you choose to be born into a country that was wealthier than countries that were poorer? Your family, did you pick that? Your opportunities. In an unjust world, this all comes from God. It is his to give and his to take away. And yet he tells us that if we give to those he defends, we will be rewarded. It's his to give, but he tells us to give it. I think there are spiritual blessings that he wants to give us for this. And further good news, I said that I don't think shame is the motivation. So what is? What? Or who? Jesus is. I felt challenged and I felt dismayed when I first looked into this. But now I feel excited because I know that I can't do this on my own. Go and read the Bible, seriously. I mean, always when you get preached something, go and read the Bible and find out if it's true for yourself. But please go and read the Bible and tell me that I'm not telling the truth on this when it comes to how much we should be loving the poor. I would love it if someone could find a biblically-based case that would let me off because I'm really busy, I've got a family, I've got kids, I work hard and I already do other stuff for the church. I would love it if that's the case, but I don't think it's there. Do you want to feel more compassion for those who are poor because you believe what the Bible tells us to? Well, consider this Jesus, who Romans says did not live to please himself. Do I live to please myself? Yes. Jesus did not. Consider this Jesus, who Corinthians says was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Jesus literally became poor. It's like the greatest injustice. God sent his only son, Jesus, to be fully man and fully God. He was born in a manger. At his circumcision at the temple, the offering they gave was two doves, which is the cheapest offering you could give. He rode into Jerusalem on a borrowed donkey. He was poor, and then he faced the ultimate injustice of his crucifixion for a life that had been perfect. Bill Hybels says, Christ was so moved by compassion that he left the spiritual wealth and splendor of heaven and lived for 33 years on this needy, suffering planet so that spiritually impoverished people like us could be restored to God. I made the decision when putting this together that I didn't want to spend lots of time on stats because I look at Jesus and I don't think that compassion is conditional. Biblical compassion is not conditional. It's the same with joy. Sometimes I question how much biblical joy I have from God because it seems to be so conditional, but biblical compassion is not conditional. If I don't feel enough compassion... It's because I'm basing that on my feelings at the time. Man on the street, I walk past. You're poor, but do you look destitute enough? And am I not busy enough that I might have compassion for you? 
Biblical compassion doesn't come from looking at the conditions, looking at poor people and making yourself feel sorry. It comes from looking at Jesus and looking at what he's done for us, how we were once lost in sin, that we're chosen by free will on our way to a just eternity of departure from God, by which I mean hell, and yet he saved us. Jesus became literally physically poor and then subjected himself to the injustice of his crucifixion. For us, he chose mercy over justice. Tim Keller writes, as a Christian knows that he received mercy while an undeserving enemy of God, when Christians see prostitutes, alcoholics, prisoners, drug addicts, the homeless, the refugees, anyone we've listed as poor, he knows that he is looking in a mirror. Perhaps the Christian spent all of his life as a respectable middle-class person. No matter, he thinks spiritually, I was just like these people, though physically and socially I never was where they are now. They are outcasts. I was an outcast. Come on. Mercy is spontaneous, superabounding love, which comes from the experience of the grace of God. The deeper the experience of the free grace of God, the more generous we must become. That's how I'm resolving to be motivated. Christ and him crucified. I honestly think that's the only way we can do it. A God who laid himself down and became poor to save the poor. Jesus has so much compassion for the poor, and those of us who know him should know that because he saved us when we were poor. So what should we do? I think we need to respond practically and in our hearts. In one of many of the practical verses about giving to the poor, Proverbs 13.23, we're told an unplowed field produces food for the poor, but injustice sweeps it away. And this comes from the biblical practice of gleaning, which is where landowners who had, uh, who had fields would produce in it. They would harvest it, but they wouldn't harvest it all the way to the edges so that the poor could come and take uh, and be fed themselves. Now, actually, there was um, an economic side of this as well, because I think it was gleaning was done to the point where it was no longer economically worth the farmers plowing the field that last bit. So there was mutual beneficent um, on that. But I was thinking, man, like, where are the opportunities for gleaning in today's society? I mean, even in agriculture, just go to this example, now they use increasingly high-tech technology. You know, they, they use laser-guided technology. They make sure they can do everything they can to be most efficient. But, you know, for myself as well, how could a poor person glean from my finances? Or is my budget so set, and actually I'm just looking for more money so I can do more things that I intend to do, that there's no space? Or, as is actually the case, because I don't look at my budget as much as I intend to, is there just any way that they could practically glean it? How could a lonely person glean my friendship Or is my friendship roster so full that I don't have time for anyone else? How could a person in need glean my time? Or from the moment I wake up to the moment I go to bed, have I got everything planned? Bill Hybels, I'm paraphrasing, says we need to have a moment and then decide, can we allow a self-centered agenda to push the poor to the back of our minds? We need this Josiah moment. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his robes. We need a paradigm shift to that of this Jesus who did not live to please himself, to that of his apostle Paul who said, whatever were gains to me I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. Again, I don't think we're doing terribly, but I don't think we're there, are we? I want to be like the rich man who goes to God and says, what else can I do? And I know I'm like the rich man who, when he's told what else he can do, finds it difficult because I know it's a big cost, but I don't want to settle. So we must respond in our hearts, but also practically. I haven't come with a ten-point plan for what to do. I've got some practical suggestions, which probably won't blow your mind. But if you take one thing from this talk on the practical side, take this, because it's my favourite proverb on the Suffolk. Uh, 28 verse 27. Those who give to the poor will lack nothing, but those who close their eyes to them will receive many curses. Now we know, we've seen the zero-sum nature of it, so we kind of understand, we've heard the second part of it, those who close their eyes to the poor will receive many curses. But those who give to the poor will lack nothing. Hello, come on. 
If you're anything like me, when you start thinking of practical things you could do, there are any number of reasons that come into my mind why I shouldn't, but pretty much all of them are met in this promise. I can't give money to that financially poor person because I don't have enough or I need it myself. Give, and God says you will lack nothing. I can't give up an evening to spend with that relationally poor person because I don't have time for both him and for me. Give and lack nothing. I don't have enough love to engage with that socially poor person. Give and lack nothing. We talked in our G1C about this, about obviously there has to be some balance and stewardship. You can't, uh, you, you've got to steward, you've got to look after your family as well. We need to be sensible with this too. But I know which side of that balance I'm on. I know which side I need to kick in. Believe the Bible and become the head and not the tail. 2 Peter 1 says his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. We've got everything we need for this, guys. So let's believe that we will lack nothing who give to the poor. And then finally, here are six quick-fire immediate applications we might want to consider. Pray. Always pray first. Stott says, if there is more violence in the community than peace, more indecency than modesty, more oppression than justice, more secularism than godliness, this is the reason that the church is not praying as it should. If we really care about this, if you feel hopeless about helping the poor and don't know where to start, should not your desperation lead you to prayer? Let's trust that God speaks for truth when he tells us to bring everything to him in prayer. Two, open your eyes. Is your life structured away from the poor? I know mine is. Volunteer. Visit a nursing home. Chat to a homeless person. Read a newspaper. Make a beeline for the person at work who is poor. Put yourself around Jesus, who himself is compassionate. Three, give. Job was a character in the old Bible who was a man of God, and he had great wealth, and God, it says, allowed the devil to take that wealth away from him to see what his character was like, and he was found to still be a man of God. But Job, when he's listing the reasons why he thinks he hasn't sinned, in chapters 29 to 31, he lays out the things he's done. He says, have I not given to the poor? Have I not been a father to the fatherless? Have I not spoken up for those who do not have a voice? Great. But then Job goes on to say, if I did not do these things, considering how much wealth I have, I would be sinning. Do you know that if you don't give considering how relatively rich we are. It's not stingy, it's unjust. The assets of this world have not been equitably distributed. So it's unjust for you to not give if you're a have rather than a have not. Remember the gold and the silver belong to God. Proverbs 28 says, whoever increases wealth by taking interest or profit from the poor amasses it for another who will be kind to the poor. God has got the money worked out, but I know which side I want to be on first. Be ready in season and out season. Take opportunities. Poverty just isn't isn't just... In terms of finance, the fatherless, widow, orphan, those who cannot speak for themselves are all around, even in a place like Cheltenham. Volunteer. Joe and I are thinking about how we can respond to this, and I googled volunteering opportunities in Gloucestershire and been limited to Cheltenham, and let me tell you, there is no excuse there. Honestly, no matter how much time that you're able to give, no matter it's during the week, nights, weekends, what kind of thing you want to do, there are opportunities. Go and google it or ask me what I googled. Go together. We need leaders on this. I don't think we're doing great on this as a church corporately. Don't wait for the church leaders to do this. We need to pick this up as well. But we need this is us. We are the church. Heibel says, Christians are experienced in so many areas, but mostly use their skills for profit making. What would happen if they began to think creatively about how they could use their expertise, influence, resources, opportunities, networks, products, and power to improve the lives of the poor? It's not necessarily the case that we need to set up our own cap centre or, or do our thing. Well, maybe it's just that we need to plug in with things. But if you feel like you're waiting for permission from the church to go and do this, consider this your, your permission. G1Cs and clusters, which are, are G1Cs linked together, we need, to, we need to think about how we can turn these into vehicles to do this. But let's do it together.
The bands want to come back up. I've taken Andy's stand, so you just have to freestyle Andy. I pr- oh, you can take it back, actually. I pray that we get some of this. I feel like I'm putting myself a little bit out on a limb by saying that I need to repent of where we haven't trusted that justice belongs to God. I know I also, also need to repent of where I haven't loved the poor as God loves the poor. And compassion is an event. When I've been sat in this for the last week, it's not like, oh, squeeze really hard. Yeah, got it. I've got compassion. It's a process. We need to put ourselves around people who require compassion. We need to put ourselves around God. But for me, this is what I'm trying to do. So let's refocus on how beautiful Jesus was. He became poor. He faced the ultimate injustice. Let's remember that before him we were poor. And we would look at people who were in poverty, any kind of poverty, Let's look at them and imagine that we're looking at ourselves and how spiritually poor we are and the fact that God showed us mercy over justice. We deserve to face the justice of an eternity without God through our sinful rebellion, but he came and died on the cross for our sins. Let's live in this. That's our reality when we look to the poor. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.